John's that curious thing, an almost uncategorizable writer. His first novel, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, brought early success. He followed that with the uh, Tasmanian Babes fiasco, but then took a dive into, into serious history, producing Leviathan, an unauthorized biography of Sydney, which received a non-fiction award in 2002. He's since written two quarterly essays, is a regular contributor of in-depth journalism for The Monthly, The Brisbane Times, The Age, and The Sydney Morning Herald, and probably a few others, but... Long Bay Prison News, mate, that is, uh, oh, okay. that is my proudest base. You've never done that, McMillan. Like, <laughs> you think you're coming up behind me, mate? You've got ages yet. <laughs> In the meantime, he also writes his own weird and extraordinarily successful type of genre fiction, producing several best-selling series, including The Axis of Time, The Disappearance, and this year, three books in one year. And I, I was guilty of a little bit of false advertising in my first email, because I hadn't actually finished the books, and it was only when I was halfway through the third one that I realised they weren't going to end. You know, I said that you, know, you didn't have to wait for the sequel. Well, it's not true. You do, I'm afraid. Um, and we'll get onto that in a minute. Uh, this is the Dave, Dave Hooper trilogy. These books have been bestsellers worldwide. As his journalism attests, John is well suited to a program entitled Outspoken. His approach to politics and social commentary appears utterly fearless while also bringing it with it a sense of humour that cuts through pretension. So please welcome John Birmingham to Milano. Thanks for having me. So, um, I've been reading Leviathan, which yeah. is, uh, you know... A bit uh, slow off the mark, aren't you, buddy? No, no, no. It's, a, it's a, 10 a, years since that came out, man. Huh? <laughs> Barely getting royalties off it now. Well, I had, I've, I've had it, but it's one of those books, like, you have a book in your bookshelf and you somehow feel you don't uh, actually yeah, have to yeah. read the thing. It just the owning, stack of shame. Just owning, just owning yeah. enough is enough. But eventually, you know, because I was going to talk to you again, I thought, well, I better read his backlist. So, so I, I picked up Leviathan. And I was riveted from the, from the first word because I, it was not what I expected. It wasn't a history book that started in 1788 and went to 1789. It, was, it encompassed a much greater breadth of thought in that it was a kind of system of essays. Do you want to talk about what, what, what you were trying to do there? Uh, I was trying to rip off a bloke called Michael Pye, who's an American writer, wrote a fantastic um, History of New York, Maximum City. Uh, it's possibly still available on, on uh, Picador. And I read that. I, I went through this period where I read a lot of city histories. Uh, and two that stood out were, were Maximum City by Michael Pye and um, City of Quartz, a dude called Mike Davies, who is uh, an architecture writer, I think. And he was writing about um, LA. And oh, Dayan Sujik's Hundred Mile City too. That was re that was really cool. The thing I liked about each of those books was that they didn't they, they, they wrote the histories of those cities, but they did not come at it chronologically. Um, they they looked at the the cities and thought, what, what what's the defining themes of New York? The defining themes of, of LA. And so I thought you could um, you could probably do that with Sydney. Uh, and the the games were coming up. I, I, this is actually an escape from falafel after. Falafel came out, I, um, which uh, I, I worked for like, I, I was Andrew McMillan for 10 years before Falafel came out. I was grubbing around and freelancing and... Um, and Living in uh, share and, houses, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not working for glamorous outlets like Long Bay Prison News, let me tell you. And uh, I, I came into the... Um, you'll get me back on topic because I'm about to go into the woods No, no, here. you go right off. Uh, I, 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 went in, I was working for the Independent Monthly, which is very much like... Um, 
uh, the Independent nowadays. Um, and I came into the magazine one day, and you, you, you may have, well, Andrew will certainly have had this experience. You, you might have. You, you, whenever you work long enough in magazines or newspapers, you will eventually wander in to your journal of choice and uh, you'll smell it, the stink of death. And I, I came into the Independent one day and I just, it brought me up short. I was on my way to get a cup of tea and some biscuits. I, I lived off their biscuit barrel, uh, being a freelancer. And I, it stopped short. I was like, oh, oh. And I went to Michael Duffy, who was the deputy editor. I said, Michael, is, uh, is that death I smell? Um, and Michael said, yeah, it is death. I said, oh, death, he said. And he said, look, I'm setting up a... Uh, little publishing house because, you know, death. And uh, he said, could you give me a stocking stuffer for Christmas? So I smashed out falafel for a $4,000 advance, which I mostly spent on uh, hot chips, red wine and amphetamines. And <laughs> it was all gone by the time I'd finished. But it was gone, uh, it was gone within five weeks. That was how long the, the book took to write. And that was it. I just, I wanted to write a book by the time I was 30. I sent the manuscript in on the, the, the night before my 30th birthday, I thought, I'm done. I don't need to do no books, no more. And uh, for a while, it seemed that was the case. That book actually died in the arse when it came out. No one bought it. Um, but then after about six months, for some reason, it, it took off. And then all of a sudden, I just had publishers coming at me like, like hungry zombies, you know, do falafel, you know, two, three, four for us, you know, <laughs> brains. And... <laughs> And I just, I thought, you know, I could end up as a kind of fat, um, bald, 40-year-old doing falafel six, if I don't watch out, so. <laughs> and that was the point at which I was reading a lot of those city histories. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm getting out. And so I wrote Leviathan as an escape from falafel. It was about as far away from it as I could get. But it's, it's five, what, 25,000 word essays? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. And these are quite... The erudition, you, I, know, I know you'd like to be self-effacing, but the erudition in this writing is really quite extraordinary. Because oh, I'm a very erudited guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, you would, what you said to me was, in a phone call a few days ago, was that you were looking for a particular theme, you were looking hmm. for particular structures. But if I look at kind of the overall theme of it, what I seem to get is... Uh, well, I think the theme is the search for power, the rapaciousness of particular individuals. Yeah, look, it is, and you're, you're right, it, it, it's kind of dark. I like to think of one of the themes that runs through it is redemption, but I'm wrong, and you're actually right, mostly. It's just punishing. Um, and I almost went back and rewrote it a while ago because I, I figured it was too dark, uh, and, and I, didn't, I didn't talk enough about how it is a city of redemption and how millions of people over hundreds of years have turned up there from the worst places in the world and for them it's it's been nirvana and it's only recently that we've started you know to to turn them away and to deny them into the the gates of nirvana but um yeah migration obviously which i stole directly from michael pye when i think his first chapter is about people who come to the city uh, and then I wanted to talk about the built environment because the interesting thing about our cities, um, they're only two or three human lifetimes old. You know, they weren't here and then all of a sudden they just wink in, into history. They're, 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 they're not like the old world where you, you just you, you go back through hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years sometimes. So the built environment was, was important. Um, 
and then when you have that, when you, when you have like a tabula rasa, uh, and you bring what what, what is for, what were for a long time the, the wretched scum of a a particular society, and you just dump them into what they considered to be an empty continent, and just said, you know, knock yourselves out, it's yours, take it, and they did. Uh, you have amazing opportunities to thieve and pillage and, and you know, rape the wealth of the place and, you know, the, the native population, obviously, which they did. Um, and, and great fortunes are amassed and great power accrues to those fortunes and, and that's the story of, of Sydney. So that but, was, but, that was but, the third major thing. There's kind of that thematic structure that you've got there of it not just being... Okay, so everybody everybody who arrived was in some way looking for the main chance, mm. but certain individuals would quickly set themselves up above everybody else and yeah. work those, work the rest of the populace towards, the, towards their own aims. Yeah, that's right. Um, and sometimes they were successful and, and sometimes they weren't. And sometimes they used legitimate means to empower themselves and, and sometimes they didn't. And that was the, that was the thing that uh, made it so interesting. When I was writing the book, of course, they were preparing for the games and so you had a new power in the city at that point that I knew was going to pass away because it was SOCOG, uh, the organising committee of the Olympic Games. And whatever those guys wanted, they got. They, they were the potentates of Sydney all the way through the, the 90s. And then all of a sudden, they were gone. And that, that's the thing that struck me looking at them in a microcosm and then across the, the previous couple of hundred years was the, the shifting protean nature of power in the city. And, and what struck me about this was that the way that these particular individuals would use whatever it possibly they could to justify whatever it was that they were doing. So, uh, you know, if they wanted to uh, use to spread, get their wealth through sheep, then, of mm. course, grazing was what it was. If they wanted to... Uh, if they wanted to maintain power, they were prepared to sell every other immigrant that came into the place. And I think we kind of see that being rewritten in our present yeah, time. Yeah, well, the thing that, about Sydney, and it's still the case, is that it's a, uh, it's a transition point. It is, it is the point on this continent where global capital enters and leaves. And that, that's always been the case. It's been the case from January 27, uh, 1788, and it's, it, it's the case now. And so a lot of that wealth was not resident within the city, uh, like in the early days with the, the, the squatocracy and the, the land, or they wanted to make themselves a landed gentry, but they didn't get away with that shit. Um, the, you know, the, they lived outside the city because it was considered to be a, a terrible and squalid and violent place, which is all true. It, it was. But it was where the capital entered the continent and where it's left, and wherever that vast amount of money passes through, the, it's, it's just going to draw power to it like a magnetic pole. And so there was no, there was no denying it in the end. That's where the power sat. And is that why you chose Sydney? Because I was curious to see, you, you grew up, you're, you were born in England, as I understand it, but you came to Ipswich when you were a boy? Yeah, yeah, my, my parents. My dad was uh, one of the last 10-pound poms. He was a fitter and turner. And he, he had some quite specific skills that were, were needed um, at the end of that program. And so uh, we came out. We really were one of the last um, migrant families. And I can remember getting off the plane and squinting into the Antipodian sun in September 22, 1970, which would have been my parents' 10th wedding anniversary. And we hopped off the plane in Brisbane. And 
I thought, oh, it's bright. And my, my mum thought, oh, what have we done? And, um, and then she saw Ipswich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you jest, but yeah, you, you nailed that one, mate. <laughs> but so, so why didn't, when you grew up in, in this environment, because the story of, of Brisbane with Moreton Bay and everything is mm. also a very interesting story. So what was it about Sydney that you Oh, look, partly I was there. Uh, in, I, I started to, uh, I, I went up to UQ, I think about 82. I, I um, started at uni and I, I did a basic arts degree. I look back at it now, it was a classical liberal arts degree, the sort of thing that's not considered that useful nowadays. Uh, but it turned out to be very useful for me. I, I still draw on that degree. Yeah. Um, not every day, but a lot. And it took me into writing, and that took me down to Sydney, because that's where all the publishers were. In those days, the magazines were, were hanging out. And I just... I was working for people like Rolling Stone and... Um, uh, uh, you know, a couple of sports magazines and um, I was just basically freelancing down there. And so I was resident in Sydney by that point. And, be, and the thing about journalism, it takes you across the city. You, you're constantly moving and, and talking to people. There was something Andrew was saying before and it just, it sounded so right. Uh, it just, it, it allows you to see things and do things that are closed to, to normal people. And you, you just have those experiences over and over again. And that's why I got into it. I, I remember um, I'd been doing it for a while and uh, I'd got I, a friend of mine, Pat, who was a, an, like a, an old Sydney resident, one of these fantastic characters who left school very early and had done like half a dozen different kind of trades. And he was the cleaner at Rolling Stone when I met him. And I was sleeping on the couch at Rolling Stone because I couldn't afford to pay rent anywhere. And we, we struck up a friendship and he took me out to Bondi to show me the big rock on the headland of Ben Buckler. This thing's as big as a truck and there's a little plaque on it. You can actually walk out there at low tide. And the plaque says, uh, in 1911, I think a great storm threw this rock up uh, onto the headland. It weighs 238 tonnes in the old scale. And Pat was just like, check it out. I'm like, whoa. And, uh, and I went back to my editor at uh, The Independent. I said, uh, uh, Max, you know, big rock, mate, waves. Like, check it out. And Max was like, whoa. Uh, and so... So I want to do some wave stories, it says, knock yourself out. And I rang up the Navy. This is years before 9-11. And um, I said to the Navy guys, you guys like waves? And they're like, oh, we fucking love waves. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Can, you, know, you, you want to show me some cool waves? And I said, dude, come with us. And they took me down to Bass Strait. And, oh, yeah, there was a point to this story, which was that I was on this... I was on this uh, patrol boat in the middle of Bass Storm in this uh, Bass Strait in this storm, and it was like massive waves, and and the, the sea's weird in a storm. Like you, you waves, everyone expects, but we, I, at one point I looked out the the wheelhouse of this little patrol boat, and there was this this trough in the water. It's like God herself had put a finger in the water and drawn it along and it flashed lightning. There was thousands of seagulls flying through this thing and I was jammed into the corner of the wheelhouse. And my face was just like that. And, and I, I remember thinking, it was like four in the morning and I was thinking, I'm probably going to die here, but it's cool because I've seen this stuff. And I was thinking about all the guys I went through school with who just were probably still in Ipswich. And, you know, they hadn't seen this stuff and they were going to live, but I'd seen it. So I won. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to move on. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. You were supposed I'm, I'm, to be I'm, I'm, I'm bringing me back on topic. And well, you're, I'm, I am. I'm, I'm, and I'm now gonna, you're I'm lost. I'm going to bring you back on topic. I just want to, because what I was going to, just before we leave Sydney, I was curious about the other thing about Leviathan was that when we look at Australian history and Australian politics and we can get really caught up in it all, mm. we really are quite a small country. Yeah. In the bottom, in the bottom end of the world. And yeah. one of the things that we don't seem to appreciate, I think, a lot of the time is how decisions that are being made in other parts of the world affect us. Yeah, no, that's true. There was a guy, it was a South African bloke who ran Fairfax for a couple of years and eventually left. And he just, one of the things, the telling things he said, he said, you know, uh, Australian journalists, they're fantastic. Their skill sets are as good as anybody in the world, but nothing happens here. <laughs> and, and then a little bit later on, the French blew up the Rainbow Warrior and uh, Chris Masters did one of the best, like, pieces of journalism on that ever, but it's true. Like, stuff that's important to us, like, you know, the Bronycopter this week, you know. Bron, a, bron gate? Yeah. I call Copter it, gate? Copter gate? Or bron, I call it the Bronycopter. Bro, bro, yeah, the Bronycopter. I, I, the bron I, they copter. rang me this week and said, you know, you're on this weekend. And uh, I was so excited I could hardly finish my fucking foie gras. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was in the, in the bookshop on Friday, I think, and... Uh, Behind the counter, a couple of men lurking, looking at books of Australiana in the corner. And who should walk in but, but uh, Senator George Brandis? He loves uh, a good book. And, and he likes a good book. <laughs> bookshelves, bookshelves Brandis. He's, a, as well he's a great supporter of the industry, mate. I'm not going to knock him. Well, uh, after, after he'd bought a couple of books, quite high-priced books, I, <laughs> I, I, I... Paid full whack for them too, I reckon. Yeah, I, I, I essayed the question. You know, I said that you know, if I wasn't on this side of the counter... I would have to pillory you for your role in, a, in t pulling apart the Australia Council. I'm a writer and I like the Australia Council. He said, I like the Australia Council too. So we kind of left it at that and, and he, he walked out of the shop and I turned to one of these men lurking near the Australiana and I said, that was Senator George Brandis. And he said, did he come here in a copter? <laughs> Straight away. Okay, so I just... Um, uh, there's probably a lot of people in this, this room who are absolutely delighted to hear you talk about politics all night, but we are here to talk a little bit about Dave Hooper. You know, that's really why, why we're here. commerce, mate. Let's do it. But, 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 but before we go there, I just want to, I want to talk about how you juggle that in yourself, the, uh, the, the, the journalist, the political thinker, the commentator, and this idea of yourself as a writer of... What, what would you call the genre that you write in, just as a matter of interest? Books that improve with altitude. <laughs> I, I, was, I did say that in one of my bits of publicity, <laughs> and then I thought, really, did that come from him? I couldn't find the quote, uh, and I was worried that you might get offended. I, I, so look, I'm I please, love I'm genre fiction. I, I, in fact, when I was doing Leviathan, that's partly how I got into it. Uh, I was at State Library for four and a half years researching and, and writing Leviathan. Um, the first 18 months, I just played Diablo on my laptop. But then I started work, and it was hard work. And yeah, I, I, about two, three years, you know, when it was getting really hard, like I'd get there when it opened and I'd leave when it closed, which was a 12-hour day, and then I'd come in and do it again on the weekends. Uh, they used to have this um, new book stand. We, and when I get bored, I'd go and you know, have a look at the new book stand. It was usually pretty dull. And then one day... Uh, there was this book there by a, a young cove called uh, Matthew Riley, and um, it just uh, it just drew the eye. It was so shiny, 
and I couldn't help it, but I was just led to it. And then I, I found my hands like reaching out because the, the, the lettering was raised. <laughs> I touched it, it was so raised, my fingers got caught between the letters. Uh, it was his first book, Ice Station, and I picked it up and I started to read it. And I just, I did no work that day. Um, I, 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 I got to within about 30 pages of finishing and came back the next morning and, and finished it off. And uh, it was probably delayed in, in putting my Leviathan manuscript in because I became obsessed with what he'd done in that book. Matthew takes a lot of grief for what he does, basically because he makes a lot of money out of it. Um, but if you look at that book technically, uh, as a like a, just a, a piece of narrative engineering, it's amazing. He, he's taken the the, the the conceits of the um, sort of post eighties thriller and and just hyper accelerated them to a ridiculous degree. And I just I, I was reading a thing. I can't keep this up for three or four hundred pages, but he did. And I thought I'm going to do that. And and so I, I, I then began to play around with ideas for that kind of book, which became, you got it down there somewhere, Weapons of Choice. And so um, it was, from the earliest days, probably because I was a freelancer, um, I, I've always you know, quite happily juggled different stuff. If you wanted to pay your rent and keep yourself fed as a writer, then you, you were going to have to do a, like the occasional piece for Rugby League Week. And, um, and so it, it, it was really yeah, not like, that big a jump. <clears throat> yeah, but we're not jump. talking about Rugby League Week. We're talking about you writing quarterly essays and yeah, yeah. piece in the monthly and taking over in the Fairfax and Mike but Carlton you, as well. Yeah, yeah, if you go back to, say, the, you know, the 20s and 30s, the, like the, the golden era of journalism, and you look at um, the guys working in that era, actually a lot of women too, particularly war correspondents in, in that, a surprising number were women, they were jacks and jewels of all trades. Like, you know, they didn't just write their columns, they also wrote books, they might write plays or radio plays, they, they would do anything for, for a quid. And that was, the, <clears throat> that was the tradition I saw myself coming out of. So, going to um, the Dave Hooper novels, um, where did they come from? Oh, a bunch of places. Um, I was a, like, like all kids, I was a, a terrified Doctor Who fan when I was young. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time watching that, uh, the, the John Pertwee and uh, Tom Baker series from behind my parents' couch. Uh, and the, I have a particular memory, and it's an emotional memory of the Pertwee series, which was frustration. Uh, because at that point, the Beeb didn't have a huge amount of money to spend on special effects. And so, uh, the, the sort of the, the rubber-suited monsters were always landing in some quarry in Wales, and <laughs> <laughs> the Doctor would drive his jalopy there and, and see them off. But uh, along with him would be Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and you know the, the the sterling chaps of Unit who'd pile out with their Belgian FN rifles and shoot at these these aliens and with to no, to effect, no effect, no effect, no effect doctor, at all. And it just drove me nuts. At the time, I I had you know, the big guns; they must have some effect. Never. And then it just it, it, it stayed with me and I, I wanted to uh, just at some point write a story where, you know, unit hopped out and shot the aliens and they fell down dead. <laughs> so that was working on me. Um, and the other thing was I was a huge fan of, uh, and still am, of George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman series. Um, yeah, see, a few people know it. It's... Um, 
it's, I don't know that you could even publish some of the earlier ones now because they're, they're just horrifically uh, incorrect. <laughs> he's, 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 not just a, he's not just a terrible man, he's a, he's a fucking bad man, yeah. Flashman. Um, but very, very funny with it. And I spoke a couple of years ago, I think after I finished uh, Weapons of Choice and those, I was talking to my, my publishers about what I might do next and I said, oh, I wouldn't mind updating the Flashman series, like not obviously taking over the copyright and doing it because they, those shoes would be way too big to fill. But just taking that idea of the, um, uh, you know, an anti-hero, basically, and, and, and writing him in such a way that people hate themselves for liking him. And it was... I, I wrote a couple of sample chapters and, and gave it to uh, my publishers and they were horrified. And I said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, but when uh, when I, I I was coming at back at that the, the Doctor Who idea originally, I thought oh, I could cross it over with that Flashman thing, and that's where the idea came from of, of this 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 hero um, who people sort of feel bad about liking, um, and also you know crossed over with monsters because you know, I like monsters. Who doesn't? So. Uh, if you would just, for the benefit of those in the audience here who haven't actually read, um, say, Emergence, would you like to, to just say how it begins? Okay, so um, I was looking for a way to introduce this character that would, that would sort of uh, make people question why they bought the book. So when we meet Dave Hooper, he's a, uh, he's a, a man of indeterminate middle age and he's pretty much on his hands and knees at the edge of a helicopter pad on the edge of the... the, the Gulf of Mexico, vomiting up uh, a stomach full of tequila and corn chips. The reason he's doing this is because uh, he works on an oil rig. He's a fly-in, fly-out worker, and he's, he's just had his six-month bonus, which he has um, purposely dissipated uh, on hookers and blow because he doesn't want his wife getting any of them, or his ex-wife getting any of the money, uh, and wasting it on school fees or <laughs> uniforms for their boys. Um, so this is where you meet him in the f in this, on the first page like this and he hops on the, the, the chopper and he's flying out to... Um, originally it was going to be the Deepwater Horizon which was that rig, uh, yeah, you nod, you know what it is. It, it's a rig that blew up in the, um, the Gulf, Gulf a while ago uh, and BP, I think, is paying like billions and billions of dollars to, in fines and... And, and to repair the damage. I, I, I set the story on there originally, but eventually I, I changed it um, because a lot of people died on that rig, so it, it didn't seem right to be putting a funny story on there. Uh, interestingly, my in the US, if you read the US copy of Emergence, the oil company is still BP. Over here, it's Barron's Petroleum um, because uh, you know, they have a First Amendment over there, and we don't. And my publishers here were quite concerned about whether or not BP might decide to just like take everything off us in court because I had posited this idea that they were drilling in the Gulf uh, and they, they just they went too deep and they break the capstone separating us from the under realms where all the, the monsters live. And the monsters come back up to the surface of the earth. It's been ages since monsters have been up on the surface. and. Um, they sort of, you know, they remember us as, as, as timid, dirty, stringy little creatures, you know, squeal a lot, a lot when you bite them and, 
and then they come back up and you know they, they take their first bite of a human and there's this huge sort of like luscious marbled fat and it's fantastic so of course a lot has happened to humanity and civilization so it turns out they can't just come and like turn us into hors d'oeuvres and the premise of the series was a sort of magic in brackets aliens now, versus D- Dave Hooper's still on the on the helicopter. Yeah, we'll get back to him. Um, <laughs> okay, so okay, you're right. Dave is Dave is out there. He's flying out, and he's he's feeling very sorry for himself uh, because uh, uh, Juliet, the the helicopter pilot. Um, lets him know that she was following his Facebook feed last night and so she's seen him in the hot tub with a lady uh, and he knows that like his wife's lawyer will probably see that photo in the hot tub with a lady and, and there'll be consequences for that and he's just he's just a woeful, woeful individual and he, he sort of drifts off to sleep feeling sorry about himself and blaming the world for his problems. And when he wakes up, uh, the oil rig is on fire and full of monsters. And he um, he, he lands and he's, he's sort of discombobulated because he's so, so hungover. And he's the safety engineer. He's the guy in charge <laughs> of things going wrong on this rig. And, and people are running around with bits hanging off them and there's flames everywhere. And, and he's thinking, oh, I'm going to get blamed for this. <laughs> And his, his friend Vince Martinelli, who's this huge man mountain of a character, is there on the rig and he's going, oh, Dave, Dave you know, you've got to sort this out. He's actually quite good at his job. It's the only thing he's, he's any good at. And it takes Dave a while to get out of Vince what the problem is because Vince was kind of hoping that Juliet would tell him because Vince doesn't want to say. And finally, Vince goes, you know, look, there's monsters on the rig. And, and Dave's like, bullshit. And... No, no, I'll take you to him. So he, he takes him down. He's, he's, he's terribly hungover. He's still really pissed off. He, he can see he's in a lot of trouble for his, this rig blowing up. And he gets down to the crew lounge and there's his friend Marty Grabac being eaten by uh, an orc, basically. Uh, um, although because uh, the Tolkien estate might be watching, they're called the Hun in the, the book. Um, and, you know, this horn called Ergon Atoth or Hun is, is eating Marty like a big meat popsicle. And Dave just brain snaps because he knows what's going to happen. These things are going to tear the rig apart. It's going to explode. No one is going to believe that orcs did it. They're going to blame it on Dave Hooper because <laughs> everyone blames everything on Dave fucking Hooper. And he just, he becomes enraged to the point where he picks up a sledgehammer and just caves in the head of this this beast. And he's able to do it because uh, one of the things about drinking hot human blood fresh from the vein is that it's it's very intoxicating for for orcs. It's, they call it blood wine. And old Ergon, who's like 10 foot tall and 405 kilos and full of teeth like a junkyard dog, and he's just, he's quite amused by, by Dave. And uh, he's, he's quite amused that Dave picks up this sledgehammer that he's already taken off Marty. And, you know, he's eaten Marty like a popsicle. It's not going to be an issue. And then he tries to, you know, Dave comes screaming at him and Ergon gets up to deal with him. Thinks he might take him back down to the Underrealms, actually, because he's got a bit of spirit. And he's so pissed that he can't deal with him. And Dave kills him. And in that moment of smashing his... Uh, his noggin in, 
all of Ergon's memories, race memories, all transfer to Dave. His strength transfer to Dave. His speed transfer to Dave. Dave, the most unworthy human being on that part of the planet, becomes a superhero. And so the whole series then becomes um, not just magic versus technology, but whether or not this, this guy, who's just a terrible turd, can actually live up to you know, what, what we need him to do. That's, and, um, and, and, and I'm curious about this because the, there is that thing that possibly you kind of going the three-act restorative uh, story. Dave, is some, there's going to have to be some kind of redemption here somewhere along the line. It might yeah. not be... There is. Like in, in book... Uh, I'm, going to, I'm just going to jump ahead and do some spoilers. In, in book two, um, we find him in, in Vegas uh, where he's, he's, he stopped in Vegas, not because it's Vegas, just because, you know, they, um, at the end of book one, dragons appear and uh, eat Obama's airplane. So all flights are grounded and he's grounded in, in Vegas, uh, which is fantastic for him because by this stage he's a hero. The, the thing about his exploits in the book is that nowadays they're all captured on, like, phone cam. And One of the things I did when I was researching this book was I got on Twitter and I said, look, you know, if this happened, what would you tweet? And people go, oh, and they, they send great tweets out, and so they're all in the book as well. And he has become a celebrity. Uh, and he, just as he's happy to abuse the power that you know, killing this monster has given him, he's more than happy to abuse his celebrity powers. One of which, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is a kind of enchanted pheromone he gives off, which makes him irresistible to the ladies. <laughs> Not, not all ladies, only childbearing ladies. Let's face yeah. it. <laughs> and, um, and so the, the, the book opens him up with him basically abusing this power. Uh, and it's just the, that entire sort of middle section of the series is, you know, asking the question of, of whether or not he is up to the heroic status everyone expects him to, to live up to. And basically he's not. You know, you're having a lot of fun here. Yeah, it, it is actually huge fun. Um, it's funny, like in the previous uh, two fiction series I wrote, uh, there, there were moments where I sort of, you know, made myself laugh writing a, usually lines of dialogue from, from characters. Um, but I was still laughing when I was on the fifth or sixth draft of the last series of this, uh, uh, this book late last year, and, it, and that's really unusual. Normally, by the, the, you would know, by the time you get to, like, galley proofs with a book, you are sick of the sight of it. You, you just, you, you don't want to have anything to do with it again. But I was still chuckling as I was reading the galleys of this. Oh, actually, um, before I came up today, I was doing a couple of, um, a couple of e-books, because one of the nice things, uh, having written those three books and, and just being so... Um, Frustrated at not knowing what was happening with the the in, inside the minds of the other characters, and this is a tip for for baby authors who might be in the audience. I just thought, fuck it, I'm just going to go rewrite this scene from their point of view. It'll never be published, but I will at least figure out what they're thinking. And so I did that. I, I just I, I plucked a couple of um, sample chapters out and I rewrote them from the points of view of the characters who weren't telling the story, and. Uh, it really, really helped, but also it meant um, after the, the, the books came out, I had like 15,000, 20,000 words from 
someone else's point of view other than Dave. And, and surprisingly, Dave is not a reliable narrator, as it, it turns out. Uh, <laughs> his interpretation of events is not necessarily to be relied upon. And so I have gone back and uh, rewritten a lot of the story from, from other POV, and it's quite a different story. And it's, again, great fun to do. He, he, comes, he comes off, it was really, it was interesting. Like when, you, when you're writing Dave from another character, he, he does not come off well. Which is because by the end of the third novel, he, Dave has actually started to look like quite a likeable character. But, but, and, and there is a sense, I mean, the interesting thing about the third novel, which I have to say to the audience is that there are three books, they're about 350 pages each or something. This is, this is you're looking at, what is it? Is it 900,000 words or something? No. Is it no, 300,000 no. 300, yeah, words? 300,000 words. I mean, mm. it's a lot of words. There's an enormous amount of writing here to all come out of one year. And the, the third book, the first 180 pages, is one set piece. Now, a set piece in a novel is a scene that just contains, is contained in itself. It's like those films that filmmakers make where they... they tracking shot, The yeah, tracking yeah. shot, and the tracking shot. Yeah. You see how long you can make a tracking shot go, or six minutes. I think the one at the, the beginning of the film, The Player, was 11 minutes. Wasn't there a film came out last year that had a 14-minute tracking shot uh, or something? And there's, there's one, there's a famous one in um, this, the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones last season, which was the Battle at Castle Black, which has quite a famous tracking shot. You Google it up, and, uh, and it's, it's quite amazing. Well, anyway, the, 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 the third book here, the first 180 pages, is one set piece. It doesn't move out of this battle that's going on in Manhattan. So it's, it's an extraordinarily sustained performance. It really is quite remarkable. Before we go, because I'm going to get some questions from the audience. We're, we're kind of running out of time. But I just want to ask, is there something allegorical here? I mean, one of the, there's two questions, two parts to this question. Is A, is there something allegorical about the novels you're writing? But B is, why do you set them, all your novels, in America? Is that just a, a financial thing, or is that something you have a, you have a particular uh, liking for seeing Americans ripped apart? Um, I, I, when I started to do these, these kind of books about 10 years ago, uh, it was uh, on the, the encouragement of a friend of mine, Garth Nix, who writes fantasy novels. Um, and Garth took me aside one day, at the, it was actually at the uh, Brisbane Writers' Festival, and said, you know, why are you writing purely for for one and a half percent of the market you could reach like these are the terrible terrible squalid discussions writers have with each other and said, you know you, you could write for a hundred percent um you just need to talk to the american market and so that was um that was why i started doing it but having done that i then toured the place and it's a fascinating country like i i actually uh i love them like they're weird uh and, and, and they're weird in all sorts of different ways. So they're, I, I do very much enjoy writing about them. Um, but yeah, it, it obviously has uh, commercial aspects as well. And, and the, the look, the, the Dave works for a petrol company, and uh, when uh, when I had to change the name in Australia to Barons Petroleum, I, I wasted it. I didn't waste, but I spent a day going off and, and designing letterhead and stationery for barons. I should have brought some tonight, actually. Um, and there's this great sort of, there's this thing I've got where it's from the desk of Dave Hooper and it's like, uh, it's got a, a coffee stain. I, I, I really should have brought this. I could have given you all some. And across it's got barons, petroleum, and then the, the, um, the motto of the company, uh, 
ripping the goodness from the very earth beneath it. <laughs> and he, there's a line, I, I can't recall whether it's in the first book or the second one, I think it's the first one, where uh, he's talking to, to Emmeline, who is this, um, uh, she's an exobiologist. She's also uh, down the Asperger's end of the, uh, the autism spectrum. And so she's, in some ways, she's perfectly designed to deal with him because she's a very, very blunt individual. And uh, he, he starts talking about global warming conspiracies and she just tells him to shut the fuck up and stop being such an idiot. Like, you know, you're an educated man, you, you know better. And if you, if there is an uh, allegory in here, it's, it's that the whole thing starts off because, you know, a petrol company just went too far and pushed too far and basically destroyed the world. But, you know, luckily my American readers haven't figured that out. Thank you, John. Look, so I want to go. I'm, I think I've asked enough questions. Can I? Uh, Chris has got a microphone. If anyone's got any questions, also, have you got a question for uh, for Andrew as well? That would be cool. Yeah, because I probably have a couple. Oh, John, uh, just interested um, about your time in Ipswich. I have friends who have spent a lot of time in Ipswich, and one of my flatmates grew up there and was in her twenties in. 1990, and you talk about themes of cities and places. I was just wondering what were the, and Ipswich, I think, has been a very thriving place and has subsequently become uh, socioeconomically took, took mm. a dive. I was just wondering what were the themes when you spent your youth there? And uh, look, when, I, when we got there, it was, a, uh, it was a vibrant working class town. It was a mining town. Uh, there was a lot of manufacturing there. And then over the, the course of the 1980s, that all just died and, and blew away, uh, partly because of changes in the global economy, but partly because of government policy too. They, they stopped um, subsidising that kind of production. And it, uh, it went from the, the, the sort of place where there was, I was up there recently, and there's still a lot of pubs in the, the main strip. And if you went along the, the, the main strip at Ippi in the 1970s, say on a Friday afternoon, say 3, 30, 4 o'clock, those pubs would be absolutely roaring. And they'd be kind of dangerous to go into because you were a fair chance of getting your head knocked off. Um, but, you know, in a mate-to-mate -mate sort of way. Whereas, uh, you know, I went back when Pauline Hanson was... Uh, like she was running for a member and then she, she actually got up and I went back and I, I did a tour of those pubs and they were dangerous as well but for entirely different reasons. They were full of people like, you know, dealing smack out the back and you were a fair chance to get a shiv in your, your, your kidney if you, you looked at someone the wrong way. And it was just, it was, it was terribly sad because it was a town that had, uh, I, I, rec I recall it really fondly um, like I, I, you know, I would say a word against Ipswich. I had a great time growing up there, and we had an enormous amount of freedom, which my own kids do not have now. Even though you know, we live in one of the most vanilla suburbs in Brisbane, they don't get to free roam the way we did and, and have adventures the way we did because the place was—it was just a really pleasant, large country town where you could actually you know, let your kids take off for whole days at a time and, and not know where they were. And eventually all that went away. It's, it's, it's changing. Um, one of the things that happened was because it was ignored for so long, 
uh, as a place to live and people didn't want to live there. There was this enormous stock of old colonial housing. Uh, it was a place called Denmark Hill near the old insane asylum, uh, which is now like, a university. And it was covered <laughs> in um, old Queenslanders, like really rambling old places, you know, six, seven bedrooms, each massive verandas. You could buy those houses in the 1990s for less than 50 grand. And you, you, know, you can't buy them now because they're sitting next to a university campus. So uh, it is, uh, it's a strange place. I went up, I actually went up there two or three weeks ago on a Saturday night, a friend of mine, Old school friend is in uh, the amateur theatre up there. They have a really vibrant amateur theatre in Ipswich, and they 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 run it out of a, a little theatre designed by Walter Billy Griffin. Um, and he said, "Oh, please come up and have a look at my kids." Like he he had like fifteen or sixteen teenagers who were doing their stage debut that night, and so I drove up thinking, oh, yeah, "Okay." And when I got to Bandamba, I realised it was Ipswich like race day, because there was all these bogans spilling out onto the road, like vomiting over their brogues, and and this just went all the way up into town. I thought, oh, mate. Uh, and then I got to this theatre, and it was just, it was fantastic. And there was like 12 people in the audience and, and 17 people on stage. <laughs> but these kids had obviously worked their asses off uh, like six months previously, and they were really nervous. But some of them were really good too. And I just thought, God, you know, what, what must it take growing up in a, you know, a place like I just drove through um, and, you know, having having the guts to commit yourself to what these guys have done tonight. So it's, yeah, like I, I, I love it. It's my hometown. But, and, and you actually answered a question of mine, which was you know, how you would respond to my introduction about the fact that I express surprise that such good writers come out of Brisbane. Oh, look, you know, there's always been really talented people, like even in the 80s when the place was a, a, an absolute dog pile. Um, in, in some ways that, that made people... If you decided to live an unconventional life in Brisbane in the 1980s, then you set yourself against a, a dominant and quite oppressive paradigm. And if you were any good, that was going to forge you like a little diamond. And if you look... There's the great Andrew Stafford book about the music scene in Brisbane in the 1980s. We were discussing it on the way <laughs> up. And, um, you know, the, the, like a, a lot of the early punk scene in Australia was um, fermented in Brizzy. Yeah. And I remember well, when I started freelancing, um, that was one of the things I was going to talk to you about before, was you were saying, uh, like, you know, there's, most of the freelancers are down in Sydney, Melbourne, and that, that's, that's true, they are. But the thing that is um, both... Uh, enthusing and, and horrifying to me at the same time is the number of young people who've decided to commit themselves to writing and, and, and to, to pay in their rent with the writing in Brisbane. And I, I realised that one night when I went in to give a talk, I think with Ben Law at uh, um, a theatre on Edward Street. And it was for like young freelancers to talk to, you know, grizzled old bastards about like, you know, how to do it. And I was expecting maybe half a dozen to turn up and there was something like 180 of these guys came in and they'd all had like multiple publications and I had nothing to teach them. I just I spoke shit for half an hour. Like. Well, you've, 
You've certainly entertained this audience here, and, and I'd just like to say thank you very much for coming all the way up to Mulaney to, to speak oh, to us. Thank you for inviting me. I, 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 every time I come up to Mulaney, I think, oh, I really should move up here. <laughs> it's a place cool. to bring up some children. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming out, too. It's a really... Uh, it's a cold night. We almost got lost coming up in the fog, so... Uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys made it in. <laughs> thank you.